far, rejected it, not understood it, not seen it for what it is. And we gather today with such great and high privilege as your people to be able to read the Scriptures and know of the ministry of the Spirit to teach us and help us understand. We plead for that work that you alone can do in our lives together as a church this day. It is through Christ we pray. Amen. Coming to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the significance of this chapter to our lives together as a local church hinges on two considerations. The first consideration is open for discussion. It calls us to exercise discernment, to analyze our world. It's a project that's ever going on in our life as a church. The second consideration is fixed by Scripture. And I pray as a truth that we will grasp and ever honor as an assembly. We lay them out this way. And by the way, if you can't see the screens up here, we're working on it. <laughs> it's going to get fixed by God's grace someday. It just doesn't happen overnight. So if you can't see it, you can always turn around because my screen's great. <laughs> but in what ways... Do gospel-preaching churches face temptations to compromise the message of the gospel by adapting beliefs, values, and practices from our fallen world? That's a question that's up for discussion. It takes discernment. We can talk about that and think about that, and it's not always an easy answer. The second is the fixed question. What is the distinguishing characteristic of a local church that enjoys spiritual vibrancy and biblical fidelity in distinction from the fallen world? What are we tempted to, in the first point, bring into our church from the outside that is corrupting and harmful to the message of the gospel? And what must prevail inside the church? Gospel-preaching churches display a rather diverse set of opinions on both of these considerations. My prayer is that we will see these matters from God's perspective as we labor to steward Christ's church together. Now, we will need to do some serious bridge work. We've been doing that in this series thus far, and we need to continue to do that. Because the Corinthians lived in a very different world. They, they, they may be a church that's about as close to us as any in the New Testament when it comes to the type of world they lived in, the influence of that world, but it looked a little different in the way that the world presented itself and the temptations that were specific to the Corinthian church are not exactly what we're dealing with today. So we have to, we have to build the right bridge and we'll get back into that in a moment. But we must mine principles from this chapter, then, that apply to us in our setting, in our situation. That first principle we find in the first five verses, and it is this. We must not permit the world's communication methods to suppress the power of the gospel in our assembly. I use the word communication methods in a specific way, one that's tied here to the text, and I think that'll be borne out. But as we move into chapter 2, let's remember chapter 1 and verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross, Paul says, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That which the world finds foolish, this message of salvation in Christ, is the message of power. 
that transforms and regenerates the soul. Notice verse 21 of this first chapter. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That is, it was not through human reason, through human invention, that we work our way to an understanding of God. God designed it, rather, verse 21, it pleased Him through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, to the rationalist, to the one depending on human reason, the gospel message seems utterly foolish. But, to the believer, verse 24, to those who are called, that is, those whom the Spirit of God has risen to life by His call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice there again the reference to the power of God. Now then in verses 26 through 31 of the first chapter, Paul says, now with this, look at yourselves. Whom has God chosen? Look at yourselves. Did he choose to save many mighty and wise people? No, he chooses to save weak people, lowly people, people who are not of noble birth, people who are not held of high esteem in this unbelieving world. And why is that the case? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 31. Let us then boast in the Lord. This will be a work of God and a work of God alone. As He brings to understanding and to life those who do not understand and are dead in their transgressions and sins. Now as we move to chapter 2, Paul returns to a sticking point between him and the Corinthian church. In a world much different than ours, the celebrities of the Greco-Roman world were people who were traveling teachers. They were known as sophists, from that Greek word for wisdom, Sophia. They peddled their philosophies like music stars do in our culture. And these celebrity teachers would travel from city to city delivering speeches with rhetorical skill, with wit, with intellectual pride, and bombast that played to adoring crowds, exalting man's reason. How a speaker packaged the speech was as important as the content, if the content even mattered. And hearers would get behind their favorite teachers with all the gusto Kansas City and Philadelphia football fans will be cheering for their teams tonight. I mean, it was that intense. I don't know if they wore jerseys, but they came to the, to the debates and to the speeches with great enthusiasm, and they fought with each other afterwards, at least intellectually, if not with fists, about who was right. Who was your teacher? Who has the real wisdom? Who is showing that they're the winner? Remember, one of the results of this is that the Corinthian church didn't think a whole lot about Paul. He didn't come in that same spirit. He didn't speak in that same way. He wasn't performing as he preached. And so it put uh, some real tension between them. Style. Paul lacked style. 
So many of the Corinthians rallied around other speakers, like any good Corinthian citizen could be expected to do. Further, the Corinthians were bent to think that Christianity was then bringing it down to that very level as one of the wisdom philosophies, just the better one, the best one. And they would pride themselves in identifying with this wisdom, seeing God's wisdom in a sense on a par with what other teachers were proclaiming. Their error was evidenced in two ways. It was, being, it was showing itself in their church. And what was that evidence? One of the evidence was the divisions among them. Siding with different teachers and playing one against the other. The second evidence was the cool response to Paul's preaching. They were prioritizing how Paul preached, how he packaged his message, how he, he, it put them in danger then of disparaging the very truth that he taught. We don't really understand it. We aren't in that situation. We can't understand exactly how they were thinking. But they were putting Paul down on the level with these other philosophers and bringing the gospel down on that level with what these other philosophers were saying. And they were bringing the world into the church. And Paul was saying, we've got this all wrong. You are not recognizing who you truly are in Christ. And you're not recognizing the uniqueness of the message of salvation in his name that's been revealed in the word. And so it is a, it is a book of, that is filled with correction and redirection to help them see their situation. And in that background, then, he speaks to them here, continuing on the point of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and verse 1, where he says, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now remember, as he came to them and proclaimed that gospel in Acts chapter 18, they were converted. The Spirit of God used that message that Paul preached to save them, rescue them from their sin and from hell. But remember that message that saved your soul? It was not with lofty speech and wisdom. Lofty speech. Tom Schreiner calls this, he says that he eschewed rhetorical virtuosity. Isn't that a great phrase? <laughs> he, eschewed virtue, he eschewed rhetorical virtuosity. That is, he wanted nothing to do with the kind of speech that drew attention just to the man. It wasn't a performance. He was speaking for God. And he, he didn't speak with wisdom. Now we have to understand what's going on here. They were using wisdom in a way the Bible doesn't use it. And so he's using one of their phrases, in a sense, playing it against them, saying, I didn't come to you with I didn't come to you as one of the traveling philosophers with my wisdom. Man's wisdom peddled by these travelers. It so influenced the Corinthians. That's not how I came to you. That's not what God did as He saved you. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul refused to adorn his sermons with the kinds of rhetorical tricks that would have scored him points as a speaker and enticed people to exalt him, not focus on the message. None of that, Paul says, my message was singular. It was what God has revealed in His Word about Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. That was my message. 
My message was Jesus. My message was not Paul. In the world, to the world's eyes, in the wisdom of man, a crucified Messiah would play like a bad joke, a foolish philosophy anyone with half a brain would immediately dismiss. That message so foolish in the eyes of the world is the very message that I proclaim to you and the message God used to save you. As a speaker in stark contrast to the traveling sophist that you so revere, verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I think what he's saying is there's no bombast, there's no boastful self-confidence, there's no reliance on rhetorical manipulation and polish. Nor was their content calibrated to earn him favor with those who found words of worldly wisdom so delicious. I came in weakness, I came in trembling. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's, I was afraid of you. I think that he's saying, I came in the fear of the Lord. I came with reverence for what God had said and for the salvation that was in Christ crucified and risen. I came with a message that was weak in the eyes of the world, that was despised in the eyes of the world. I didn't manipulate that message to impress you with me. I came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, or of the Spirit's power. That is, I did nothing to get in the way of the Holy Spirit who alone can transform lost souls through the power of the Gospel. The power to save a soul lies not in human rhetoric, ingenuity, or skill. Let us take that to heart, Eden Baptist. The power of the Gospel to save a soul does not lie in human rhetoric, ingenuity, or skill. Now, human speech is important. And effective human speech is essential. God calls us to herald the gospel truth, to speak it out so that it can be heard and understood. But it is the revealed message empowered by the Holy Spirit that saves and transforms the lost soul, not the ingenuity, cleverness, charisma of a speaker. That, in fact, can get in the way. Paul said, I didn't let it get in the way. I spoke straight up truth of God's pending judgment against those who break His law. His judgment against liars, those who lust and steal, those who fail to love others as they love themselves and the like. He preached that message of judgment and pending judgment. And he said, and I spoke the straight up truth that God's salvation plan from the judgment that we deserve is found in Christ alone. The eternal Son of God who took on flesh and died in the place of sinners, rising from the dead to give us life in His name to all who will turn in trust and dependence upon Him. And that message is sounded here today with the same authority. As you put your trust and your hope in Christ, paying the penalty of your sin and giving you resurrection life, there is found in that message a salvation of our souls for eternity. 
what motivated this dependence on the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Resting in the wisdom of man is like putting your weight on a thin stick that's going to snap. Resting in the wisdom of God is like standing on bedrock. I wanted you to stand on the bedrock. So I preached Christ crucified and risen. I didn't perform and God saved you. I spoke to you what the Spirit has revealed. News of a crucified Savior was that message. Not Paul's ingenious ideas. So he preached not to impress his hearers, but to point them to Christ crucified and risen. This is the message God has revealed. And this is, he will say later, true wisdom. But as we think of this, the the work of the Spirit of God bringing to life the soul by means of the Word, this unction from the Holy Spirit is not something a seminary can teach a pastor or a church can teach its members. The preaching of God's Word with power is in some sense an otherworldly, supernatural gift of Christ to His church. There's something profound that takes place. It is the Spirit alive and teaching and convicting and instructing. And as a church then, we need to honor that, value that, and do nothing to get in its way. We must not permit style and accoutrements to become the message. What we must long for and strive for is the presence and enabling power of the Holy Spirit among us as He mediates the presence of Christ to His people. Now to this point in the letter, Paul has delivered a lot of sledgehammer blows against wisdom. And knowing the context helps us understand why he has said it this way. By this he means, of course, human philosophy. The pure rational endeavors of man against God and without his aid. By attacking wisdom, Paul is assaulting their infatuation with this enterprise in their culture. He's using their terminology against them. But there is indeed another sort of wisdom that is God-honoring, and so that in that sense of wisdom, to that sense of wisdom, he now turns in verse 6. And in verses 6 through 16, we could summarize it this way. We must receive God's wisdom revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, knowing the lost cannot comprehend it. That last phrase is essential to what he's saying and is essential to us to take to heart. We need to receive God's wisdom that's been revealed by the Holy Spirit knowing that our world cannot comprehend it. It's an otherworldly message. It requires the Holy Spirit's presence to understand it, to truly conceive of it. Verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Paul does speak, of course, a message of wisdom. Well, I did not use wisdom. I didn't preach wisdom. Well, I did. The true wisdom is what he's saying. 
What he preaches is neither irrational nor foolish. It is foolish to the world. It is at odds with the wisdom of unbelievers, a wisdom doomed to die with them. They're perishing, he says. But Paul speaks of another type of wisdom, a wisdom revealed to the mature. Full stop, this is really important to grasp. Is Paul saying, I preached wisdom to a certain class of believers who we could call the mature? I don't believe that he is. It's not a reference to a higher class of church members. Paul is probably using a term that the Corinthians were using wrongly to describe all, Paul is here describing all Christians. Mature in the sense of the recipients of the wisdom of God. So all members of Christ's body to whom, in whom Christ dwells are the mature in his view here. Among the mature, I could just say it, among genuine Christians, we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Verse 7, rather, we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Again, he's using their terms against them. This secret wisdom. That's what they were pursuing through their philosophers. He said, we have that true wisdom from God. It is hidden, secret wisdom. There's more behind these original words. But notice here in verse 7, at least these three points. Notice that God's wise plan of redemption was decreed by God before creation. Our salvation, believer, it's not an afterthought. It has been decreed by God from before time. It is God's eternal sovereign will. Think of it in these terms. I live here in this moment, but from eternity past, God has decreed this salvation plan. Second observation on verse 7. This wisdom is not discoverable by man. It was hidden in the mind and plan of God and could only be what? It could only be revealed, not discovered. The human mind's never going to get there to the salvation we have in Christ. I mean, think of it. We spent the rest of forever trying to figure it out. How God, the God-man, stands between to die in our place and pay the eternal cost of our judgment. Beyond human imagination, let alone reason, it had to be revealed. God had to say, here it is, and we need to receive it. Thirdly, in verse 7, that plan is for our glory. See that there at the end of verse 7? For our glory. That is, God's final goal for us is to enter into His glory free from the guilt and power and very presence of sin. May God bring it on soon. And that will sound wonderful. No sin in the presence of God. The day's coming, believer. And God saved you for that day, as well as for this. That's how I preach. That's the message that I've conveyed. Verse 8, none, now thinking of our world, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The revelation of God's salvation plan was lost on the Roman officials and the Jewish religious leaders who crucified Jesus. They saw no Savior in Jesus, just a mere man that they had to eliminate. Verse 9, 
He now appeals to the Old Testament to support his point here. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. No one could figure this out. No one could see this. No one could invent this. But God in His grace has revealed it to us. He's taken the cover off the message and the plan that He had from eternity past, and He's made it clear to you, the church. This is not a reference, as some have taken it, to heaven, though it includes heaven. But notice verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. What human ingenuity and reason could never invent, God, Christian, has made that clear to you. He's taken the veil off of your eyes and He's helped you look at what seems impossible from a human standpoint and said, here is my saving grace to my people. God has revealed it to us through His Spirit. Verse 10, For the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God. As the third person of the triune being, the Holy Spirit knows the sovereign purposes of the Father. It certainly is a statement of the Holy Spirit's divinity. For He knows entirely the mind of God. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The point is not that, however, but it's this Spirit that makes clear to you the word of the Lord. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The spirit is thus a person. We cannot know, what's he saying? We cannot know what another person thinks until they reveal themselves in words. Let's say that Beth makes a, a new food that's never been tried before, gives it to me in my lunch, and I take it here at lunch, I'm eating it, and I talk to her on the phone while I'm tasting. She said, are you tasting it? Are you trying it? Is it good? She can't see me, so she can't read my face, and she has no clue what I think of what I'm eating. Right? I might say, this stuff is terrible. I wouldn't feed this to my dog. Or I may be thinking, this is wonderful. Where has this been? Like, keep making it. She's just waiting on the other side of the phone. No visual, no idea of what I'm thinking. No clue what I'm thinking, right? I know exactly what I'm thinking. How does she know what I'm thinking? I tell her. I reveal my thoughts. I have those thoughts, and those thoughts are mine to never be known by anyone else unless I speak them, unless I reveal them. Likewise, we cannot know the mind of God until He reveals Himself. There's so much here for us. We see it. It is not me reasoning my way to God, a theology from below that says, here's what God must be according to human reason. It does not operate in that direction. It operates in the other direction. He reveals His mind and His will, and we must receive it. We can only receive it. 
as the Spirit of God makes that clear to us. The Holy Spirit knows the Father's mind regarding our salvation. He has revealed that truth to us. Verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but we have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Think, brothers and sisters. He says, think. It's not the wisdom of the world that saved you. It was the witness of the Holy Spirit that opened your eyes to the gospel. He empowered you to understand the things freely given to us by God. I think that's a reference to the salvation that's in Christ and its implications. God has come down. He has revealed Himself to us to say, here is the truth. And when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to that gospel, we are enabled to understand God's wisdom. Now for his part, Paul says, verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, not the philosopher's way of drawing attention to themselves and performing and using human reason alone, not that way, but, verse 13, taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, or you see the marginal note, spiritual truths with spiritual words or something of the like. This is a really hard phrase to interpret, and there's lots of ink spilled on trying to do so. But I I favor the interpretation of something like explaining spiritual truths in the language that the Spirit has given us. I think I had a real illustration of that this week. I've been doing some preparatory work for a coming course and reading old people, dead people, long dead people, like second century. I was working a little bit of that reading and was reading Irenaeus, who's a a great hero of the early second century church. And as I'm reading Irenaeus, it sounded like I'm talking to a believer today. The same kinds of terminology, the same understanding, the same ideas. There's a language that the Spirit of God has given us. I think we recognize a lot of things that we say here. There's an understanding as we share those ideas. If you put an unbeliever in the midst of us, they're going to say, you guys are crazy. What are you? I don't even understand what you're talking about. God has given us concepts, redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, the new birth, eternity, and the triune God. He's revealed these truths about Himself and we speak in those terms as we build each other up in that faith. So the ESV links the idea to what follows, thus to persons. I think maybe we could link it rather to what precedes and thus it is spiritual ideas, interpreting spiritual truths in spiritual terms. But at any rate, challenging phrase But the main point is that we tap the wisdom of God not by unaided human reason. Our authoritative appeal then is to what the Holy Spirit reveals in the Word of God. So what happens in a church when words are exchanged, when the words of God are exchanged for human wisdom, for the patterns, for the beliefs, for the practices of the fallen world? What we're in danger of doing there is that we detract from the gospel's power to save. 
We rely on man's wisdom, not on the Holy Spirit of God revealing the truth of God's Word to the heart of, our, to, to the, heart of the believer. Now, this doesn't mean that every idea that an unbeliever has is always false. That, that would be a wrong conclusion. It does mean our world cannot understand the mind of God. It therefore cannot be a source of wisdom on how to approach or to please God or to speak about Him. Only the Holy Spirit can lead us into truth about origins, about sexual ethics, about male and female, about family relationships, about racial divides. Or only the Holy Spirit can lead us into knowing what is wrong with mankind and how to fix it. We say yes. Only His revelation permits us to understand His mind. And when the church begins to calibrate its message by the dictates of the culture, we lose touch with the truth of God. Against any such notion, Paul stresses in verse 14 that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. By spiritually discerned, just read that. Don't read that. That can be taken in a wrong way. That just means the Holy Spirit's there. They're spiritually discerned. The Spirit of God is teaching and instructing. Enlightening our knowledge of the Word. The unbeliever, the natural man, the one who is not indwelt by the Spirit of God, finds the beauty of God's truth folly. He might think it's utterly stupid. Or he might at least find it unnecessary, a waste of time, or altogether untrustworthy. It's just folly. Not important. Picture a blind person judging an art contest. That blind person cannot do that. There's an incapacity to see the artwork. So the unbeliever is not capable of judging the believer, of knowing what we're listening to. And if you do not know Christ as Savior, we've mentioned his way of salvation, the truth that God has revealed about that salvation. But what we see here in verse 14 should shake you. It says that apart from Christ, you can't really see the truth that God has revealed. And I would encourage you to know, first of all, that this is a matter of prayer. Plead with God to open your eyes. And know then, secondly, that He invites you to come. He invites you. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that all would respond to this message. So know that and ask Him to help you see what you can't see. Verse 15 is a contrast now. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. We could do a six-week series on how this verse has been misused. It is unbelievable. But it's very simple if we get what Paul's saying. Verse 14, the natural man, the person without the Spirit of God, 
The spiritual person, verse 15, is simply the believer, one with the Holy Spirit. So wherever you see spiritual, don't think our culture and how that word's used. Think presence of the Holy Spirit. One in whom the Spirit of God dwells, verse 15, judges all things. That is, we do have perception of what God has said. We can apply that to the unbelieving world. By virtue of the new birth, by virtue of the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we're able to see the sin of this world. Now, we don't do so perfectly, and we can falsely judge, but we know the mind of God. We're enlightened by the Holy Spirit to see the sinfulness of sin and how the beliefs and practices of a fallen world violate God's will. But He Himself is to be judged by no one. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you're an independent creature that can just run around and do whatever you want because you have the Holy Spirit. It's saying the world cannot judge our obedience to Christ as foolish and wrong because the world does not have the Holy Spirit's revelatory guidance. We are not judged then that way. Article in the local paper recently judged us as Christians for imposing our religion upon the abortion debate. We should stay out of it. Your religion is your religion. You are imposing this upon other people. And that's all this is, is you using your opinion to take away the rights that people should have. That's the argument. I think that fits verse 15. He himself is judged by no one. We are not judged rightly by this individual in this article as the followers of Christ. We know on the authority of God's word that God believes abortion is murder. It's a violation of God's law and his sovereign authority over life. On the authority of God's revealed word, we can make that determination. And those who do not see that do not have the mind of God. Now we have to be cautious. We don't have that type of authority in every area where we think we know the truth. But in areas such as this, the world cannot judge us. Now the wrong interpretation of verse 15 is no one can tell me I'm wrong. I have the Holy Spirit who teaches me what is right for me and no one can counter the Holy Spirit. Just take the Spirit out of there. You're just talking for yourself. You're saying I'm an independent individual who can do whatever I want. Such Christians claim then that they are above discipline, that they are above counsel, that they have the mind of God and cannot be disturbed with other views. That is a misinterpretation of this verse. As Gordon Fee notes, the tragedy in this is that these same Christians are usually the ones who most need the church's rebuke and correction. But the point again is that unbelievers cannot judge a Christian for obedience to God's word, to following the dictates of a holy life. They don't get it. Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? No one. As Fee says on this, who wants to match wits with God? That's the point. But we have the mind of Christ. 
God has graciously opened our eyes to the truth we now see with increasing clarity. So, let's return to our initial considerations. In the first place, we must identify and resist temptations to compromise the message of the gospel by importing beliefs and practices from our fallen world into the life of the church. We are in a certain culture. We're sitting here in this room. This very much bespeaks our culture. We're sitting in chairs. There's lights. There's heat. The beautiful gathering place. It's very culturally oriented. But what we're talking about is the need to be careful that we not bring into the church that which compromises the message that God has revealed. We must minister to our world with warmth and with relevance, but we can also so prioritize relevance that we steer our preaching and teaching away from what the Holy Spirit has revealed in the Scriptures. We can approach our gatherings to worship in a way that mimics the forms and style and the values of a godless world, and in doing so, we leave off ministering saving grace to the world And we start being formed by it. As some have noted, what our world demands of the church today is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic. This is how you should teach in the church. Be good boys and girls by being people that you have it in you to be. Therapeutic. All our problems are rooted in what we have suffered at the hands of others. Trauma from which we must seek inner healing and emotional recovery for the rest of our lives. Keep coming back. Deism. God created the world, saves us, but then is conveniently absent from our daily lives. Calibrating the message to moralistic therapeutic deism is pretty comfortable to an unbeliever. And the power of the gospel is stripped away. And no one notices. Brothers and sisters of Eden Baptist Church, may God ever calibrate our ministry to the exaltation of what God has revealed in His Holy Word and by the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God to understand that truth. May it be our quest to calibrate our our life together to that truth, to the order that God calls us to follow in His Word. We need to be relevant to our world. But may we also realize that God's revealed Word is the most relevant consideration any human being can ever have. And the fact that unbelievers do not see this is no reason to pretend that it's not the case. And then on that second point, as we look inside the church, we must prioritize the work of the Holy Spirit among us. A dependence upon the illumination, the instruction of the Word by the Holy Spirit is the only path to spiritual vibrancy and biblical fidelity. Local churches can skirt this truth by calibrating their focus to the patterns of the world, first point, but they can also do so by calibrating the ministry of the church to ecstatic experiences. 
phenomenal growth at all cost, conspiracy chasing, or sidetracked ministries that make good things ultimate things, and on it goes. May God help us calibrate a church culture in which we depend upon and seek the transformational, illuminating, enlightening, convicting, joy-producing presence of the Holy Spirit among us. What does that look like? Think of it in the context of what he has said. Again and again, like a drumbeat, it is by elevating the word that God has revealed putting that word central to the life of the church and depending on the Spirit of God to make clear the revelation that He has entrusted to His church. That we as a pillar and ground, a buttress and support of the truth, stand for that revealed truth that our world mocks and cannot understand. But we do so with a vibrancy and with a joy, knowing that that very word revealed by the Spirit of God is our eternal life. May Holy Spirit vibrancy mark us as the Spirit then mediates the presence of Christ to His people through the word of God that He has revealed. What a gift! It is a message from above we could never discern on our own, but God has made it clear in His saving grace. May we thank Him. Lord, together we gather now in prayer. We come to You before Your throne. and We thank You for the wonder of grace that You have revealed to us by the Spirit of God. May the Holy Spirit's presence be evident in this assembly. May it be evident not in ways that are performed and manipulated. But I pray that the Spirit's presence would be illumining the Word of God, helping us to calibrate through conviction and instruction in righteousness, to calibrate our lives to this message You have revealed. I pray that this church would be preserved from borrowing from our world and molding the message to what the world expects. And I ask that this otherworldly revelation from on high would be our focus. And that the Spirit of God would be transforming us into the likeness of Christ. We know this is not something that comes from us. It's not something we can manufacture as a church. But it is something that you can do. And I pray that you will continue to do it. I pray that this work of the Spirit of God in illumining eyes would open the eyes of those who know you not as Savior, and that we would see them respond to that truth with joy and salvation, following you as believers in baptism and living according to all that Christ has taught us and knowing the joy of it. Lord, will you answer this cry of our heart that you alone can answer. We pray it in the name of our Savior, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Amen.